Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is a day that will live in infamy. A man who I have been trying to get on this podcast since I was born. This guy is a huge part of my history in the business. And without him, I wouldn't have had a start in the theatrical business. I wouldn't have had the relationships that I had in the beginning of my career, and his company believed in me before many people even knew who I was. And I'm talking about Harry Abrams, who is the CEO and president of one of the top 10 agencies in the world for theatrical and all different commercial and radio and all across the board. And I'm talking about Abrams Artist Agency, AAA, and that is not the towing company. Although I'm sure the guy who owns AAA, who's probably dead, is looking down saying, hey, how come he stole my name? Anyway, but you didn't steal any name. It's Abrams Artist Agency. And so I firstly want to thank you all for being so great and so incredible. The letters, even the letters that I've gotten in the past 24 hours and emails have been just absolutely insane. And even the letters from guests that I've had are so unbelievably humbling. And when you do this podcast, again, you do it in your spare time. You try to figure out how to do it so you can do your business. And Harry, no exception, when I finally got him to do it, his email said to me, listen, 
I'll do it for you, but it's got to be between the 12-hour blocks that I'm working a day and I work on weekends. And so here we are on Saturday morning, okay? I think the sun just came up in the podcast studio here at 10100 Santa Monica Boulevard. And we're looking out over Santa Monica Boulevard and I don't even see a car. And this man that I'm talking to, I can assure you, he is over 21 years old and he is under 100 years old. And I'm not going to say how old he is, but I'm sure it's closer to 100. But the fascinating thing about this man that I'm looking at right here, Harry Abrams, is that this guy doesn't have a wrinkle. He's in incredible shape. You could circumcise a small Jewish boy off of him. It's unbelievable. And he's a handsome man, and he's got a lot of charisma. And you understand why it's possible that a man that started in the agency business before I was born, think about that. I am what's known in the Jewish religion as an aldakaka. I am an old man. And I was born after he started in 1957. And he's had an enormously successful career and has broken some of the most amazing talent in the business. And so normally, everybody, I look at my guest and I think of something I'm going to say and I don't know what I'm going to say until they get here. And now I know what I'm going to say. When I was in New York City, I was fortunate enough, as you know, some of you know, to have a good eye for young talent. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know how that happens. I can't claim to be on this podcast and tell you that I went to college to know how to look at somebody and know that they could possibly do great things theatrically or in performances. It just happened. And the people that I saw in the beginning that's been well documented in these podcasts are people like Dave Chappelle, Jay Moore, Louis C.K., a young man named Elon Gold, Jim Brewer, Tracy Morgan. And the list goes on and on of these young teenagers or kids in their early 20s that had something really special, but they had no money. They had never booked a theatrical job in their lives. They had no resume. Their resume had their name on it, my name and address, and nothing. But I believed in these people. And consequently, Harry Abrams did the same thing in another way. He hired young agents to work for him that also, technically speaking, didn't have a huge resume in booking actors, actresses, writers, directors, stand-ups in the world. But he interviewed with them people like Ruth Ann Secunda, who is now a agent at ICM. Martin Lisak, who's now an agent at UTA after being at CA for a while, working with Jason Heyman and people like Will Ferrell and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. 
a man named Joe Rice, who was an incredible, incredible agent who did great work and was instrumental in so many deals that we did, who's now a manager. And Shaney Rosenswag, who is an incredible agent and also has gone on to do amazing things and is an incredible, incredible agent. And Harry hired all these people. And I can assure you that these people were similar to Chappelle and Jay Moore and all the people I mentioned in the sense that you could see from meeting them that they were extraordinary people. They had a spark. They had a drive. They wanted to get to the next level. But they just needed somebody to believe in them as much as Harry or I believed in the people that we saw. And a lot of times in our business, I don't care what you do for a living or where you are and what company you're working in as you're here, whether it's entertainment or not. If you're starting out, one of the greatest gifts you can have is for somebody who's older than you, who believes in you, who's willing to teach you, who's willing to be there for you and back you up and let you know that they believe that you can do it and you're going to be successful in this business. And I have a kindred spirit to Harry because when I was starting in the business as a young manager and I had these clients, he allowed his young agents to sign eight of my clients who had never done anything before. And there were other people too, like Daryl Hammond, who went on Saturday Night Live, and the list goes on and on. And when you're running a company, you're writing the checks. And you're writing the checks for all these young agents. And I don't care if these young agents made the shittiest salary known to man or woman. Let's just pretend he paid them the worst possible. We're talking about four people. So even if he paid them an astrologically low salary that's just above an executive assistant, after their salaries, their assistants, their amortized office space, their phones, their FedExes, their lunches, even if it was the lowest amount of money, he was investing probably over $200,000 in these people, even if it was a minimal sense. And you know what it takes to get that money back for Harry to break even? They have to book $2 million worth of jobs. $2 million. And my clients hadn't booked $2,000 worth of jobs. But his team believed in every one of them, and at the head of the team was Harry. He was the guy who could veto anything, but he didn't. And he believed in me as a young manager coming into his office with hair down to my ass, cowboy boots, and these young artists who were teenagers who'd never done anything. And Harry Abrams and his team gave me the confidence of knowing that I had something that maybe other people didn't have, and I had something to offer that maybe other people couldn't offer. 
And because he believed in me and he signed all the artists who eventually, I think we had four clients who went on to book Saturday Night Live together. Jay Moore booked his first sitcom, Camp Wilder. It went a whole season and then it went on from there. And Harry's belief in me and his belief in his agents and my belief in my artist Together, we formed a great bond where we were incredibly successful and the other agencies were frustrated. You can guarantee that they were having meetings at their company saying, what the hell is going on here? How come Barry and Harry Abrams and his team have four people on Saturday Night Live and we don't have anybody on Saturday Night Live? We have one. We're William Morris. Why, does, why do they have four and we have one? We're ICM. Why do we have three and they have four? And that's something that I'll never forget that Harry Abrams brought to me as a person, as a professional, and he jump-started something in my career and he believed in me. And so what I want to say to everybody out there who's starting in the business, find an affiliation, find a place where you can go and work. I don't care if you make minimum wage. I don't care if you're interning. Find a place where there's a person there who's willing to spend time with you, who's willing to believe in you, who's willing to look past your mistakes and teach you what to do right and what not to do so you can get to the next level, who wants you to either stay with their company or would be thrilled if you went to another company and were successful because they want you to do well and they know karmically speaking that's going to be the way it's going to go and there's going to be more people that are going to come in and if you've been around a long time like Harry or myself my words to you are if you haven't been doing it think about it think about next week taking the time seeing somebody in your office that might not have all the credits might not have all the things going for them. And think about taking the time to help them to get to the next level. Think about spending the time to telling them that you're proud of them and you're grateful for what they do for you and that you want to see them win. And I guarantee you, everybody, if you do that, whether you're young or you're old, you're going to start to see yourself feel better, feel great about what you're doing, and feel the kind of levels of success and know in your heart that you will be able to have the kind of career that Harry Abrams has. Here we go in three, two. They ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now the People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So excited here with my guest, the man, the myth, the legend, between 21 and 100 years old, Harry Abrams. Harry, I want to go way, 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 way back. I want you to tell me what your family life was like, where you grew up, and what your first inspiration was to get into this business. Uh, I grew up in, uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, down near Adams and La Brea. Uh, I uh, came from a very uh, poor family, a father uh, uh, and mother. A father had uh, was, worked in a print shop. 
was a printer. Uh, my mother, uh, I have three sisters, three younger sisters. And uh, my mother worked uh, when the girls were old enough, they were off into school. She worked as well. Uh, she worked as a uh, inspection uh, control type of a woman on a, at a, at a airframe company. And um, my father, uh, 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 my father had never gone beyond uh, grade school. Uh, he had to quit when he was a bit, um, I think, in the sixth or seventh grade because his father had died young, and he had three or four brothers, and they all had to leave school in order to support the family. So he never had above a uh, uh, maybe at middle school. I'm, I can't even recall. Um, he may have may have gone on to high school, but I don't think so. My mother uh, graduated from high school, but she uh, uh, she never went on to college. Uh, they were from Kansas City, Missouri, which is where I was born. They came west when I was about a year and a half, maybe two years of age. So I was raised in Los Angeles, and. Um, I always, uh, um, uh, being the only um, boy in the family of four, uh, I wanted to, um, and I had grandparents and aunts and uncles, but no one had really had any real degree of success. So I, I aspired to try to make something of myself. And um, so I studied and I, I worked at school and uh, I, um, I learned the, uh, early on the true value of a dollar because I... Um, I used to have a paper route when I was about, oh, uh, maybe about nine, eight or nine years of age, and I rode my bicycle after school and delivered newspapers and collected the money for it. Um, but I wanted to elevate myself and make more money than that, uh, and so I uh, went to work as uh, selling newspapers on a corner of uh, Pico and La Brea, which wasn't far from our house. I would go uh, after school and uh, sell the, um, the then newspapers, which were published here in Los Angeles, the, the Daily Mirror, the Los Angeles Daily Mirror, and the Los Angeles Herald Express were the two afternoon newspapers. And I would go out uh, when the cars would pull up to the uh, signal, the stop signal, I would uh, take the newspapers and I'd go out in between the cars, I'd walk in between them and sell the newspapers. The newspapers were a nickel or a dime at that point. And uh, people would roll down their windows, and I, began, and I developed a clientele, actually, of people who were looking forward to see me after school, and I, was, I enjoyed seeing them, got to know some of them by name, just automobiles. Now, out of each nickel, what did you make? I can't recall. Uh, maybe I made uh, one and a half cents or something like that. And over a, maybe a period of about six, seven, eight months, I um, uh, developed the street corner. It had never, uh, they'd never had uh, newspapers sold on that corner. And uh, I dealt with the newspapers. I handled the financial aspects of it. And after I developed the corner, I went back to my, uh, I had a bunch of buddies of mine on Orange Drive there, which is where, where we lived. And um, I hired a younger, I was now 10 years of age, and I hired an eight-year-old to work <laughs> on the corner and, and work with my uh, do, selling the newspapers, um, and I gave him a part of the one and a half cents. And what I did is I then moved three, uh, I moved about uh, to the next signal, uh, which uh, moving west on, on Pico, 
The next signal was Redondo after La Brea. And I moved down to Redondo and opened up the street corner, started selling papers on that street corner as well. And I did that for about six months, still keeping the corner at Pico and La Brea. And after I developed that, I hired another kid from the same block on Orange Drive. <laughs> How old was he? Well, uh, you know, he was about eight or nine at that time. I was now 11 or 12, something to that effect. And, and I moved to the next street corner, which was another maybe about three quarters of a mile down from Redondo, uh, which was Pico and Hauser. Anyway, the bottom line was that over a period of about two and a half, three years, I um, had now an enterprise. You know, I had um, two other kids working for me, and I was working the last corner. And at that point, oh, also on that corner, I ended up on Pico and Hauser. I ended up uh, selling uh, the um, Sunday uh, newspaper, which came out Saturday afternoon, the Los Angeles Times. I sold that, and I stayed on. I, so I not only worked Monday through Friday, to deal with people who were working, coming home from work, but I dealt with people in the neighborhood, and I sold the Los Angeles Times. And at your highest level at that time, at 11 years old, what's the most money you remember making in a week from all your ventures with all the kids you hired? If I made um, $100, it was a lot. $100 a week. Uh, it was a lot. But $100 back then... It was unbelievably... This is in the 40s. It was in the, yeah, in the 40s, right. So $100 then would be like what now? I haven't any idea what the inflation is. Maybe $1,000. $1,000 a, a week. Maybe more. So I couldn't nice. tell you. Anyway, but the value of the dollar, I spoke about my father teaching me the value of the dollar from the very first day that I started earning my own money. Uh, since we were very poor, he asked me for a part of the, he wanted to ask me for rent to live in the household. When you were 11, he asked you for rent? Well, no, it was about eight or nine when I was at my paper around. He asked you for rent when you were eight years old? Yes. You know, he was, uh, we were a very poor family, and, uh, and he felt that this was teaching me a lesson uh, about money and the value of a dollar. And, it, you know, when I think back, I mean, I, I resisted it terribly at the time, but as, as I look back on it and have looked back on it many times, it certainly taught me uh, to understand the value of a dollar. And I did, and I paid rent in the house. And as I did better, uh, as I earned more money, and I had two other young fellows working with me or for me, uh, uh, he asked me for more rent. And, uh, and it was... Uh, That's when you learned the Lou Wasserman thing, get information, don't give it. You told them you were making more money, and they stuck you. That's exactly what Lou Wasserman told me. Don't ever give him information. That's right. So you learned that lesson too. I had a paper out too, but to show you the difference between you and I, I wasn't resourceful enough to hire other eight-year-olds. So that just shows you the level of business that I'm in and that you're in and shows you our trajectory. But secondly, I think it's important for our audience to know the definition from you. What is the value of a dollar? You say learn the value of a dollar, but what's the definition for you of the value of a dollar? Well, you, there are a hundred pennies, there's a hundred cents in a dollar, and you, uh, uh, you learn um, what a penny will buy you and what 10 pennies will buy you and 50 pennies will buy you. Uh, it taught me uh, that, you know, when someone wanted to, uh, when you had to buy something, what its worth was, what its actual worth was. And 
If I didn't want to pay that particular amount that the seller was asking me for, I would negotiate with them. So I learned the art of negotiation early on too as well. Now, when your dad asked for rent, did you negotiate with him? Like, what did he want? What did you end up paying? Well, I was, uh, as I say, I didn't pay him very much money, but uh, I didn't make that much money. But I, um, I can't recall. I didn't negotiate with my father. I couldn't negotiate. However, I did negotiate with the publishers of the newspapers uh, once I had developed more business for them and developed the street corners. Uh, I was able to negotiate a better deal for myself. What did you get? Oh, geez, I can't remember. Uh, two cents per paper? Two cents, right. All right. Well, as the price of the paper went up, if it went up to seven cents or it went up to a dime, I wanted more money for my services. Uh, I, was, I, had, I had three street corners under my control at that point, uh, whatever. <laughs> anyway, but all of this taught me early on about entrepreneurship and uh, taught me about training people and uh, uh, people who were younger and who wanted to, uh, who aspired to bigger and better things. And so, so that was early on. We were talking about the uh, early part of my career. And so I went on to uh, high school. I went to Los Angeles High School uh, and I uh, became active in the school government uh, uh, at, at the school. I became a class president at, uh, at Los Angeles High School. Uh, I ran for office. Uh, Did you win or you get defeated right away? I actually won. I remember my speech, which was in my um, junior year, running for class president of the senior class. So you remember the speech? Can you give no, us No, I like... remember. I'll give you the opening. The Please. Speech. That's all I really remember. I, I said, um, I addressed an audience of students. You know, there were maybe about seven, eight hundred, maybe a thousand students are there in the, uh, in the, at L.A. High School, in the auditorium. I said, uh, A students, B students, uh, C students, D students, and my friends. <laughs> that got a big laugh and helped me win the election. <laughs> anyway, it was... Um, that's awesome. Can I borrow that and give that to my sons? You, you can, certainly. As uh, a uh, matter of fact, uh, Bernie Sanders is using that today now. He, he deals with the common man and uh, with the people, you know. Is Bernie Sanders younger than you? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't actually know what his age is. I, 74. Yeah. Well, he's in the same region <laughs> as I am. So uh, anyway, after L.A. High, I uh, went on to UCLA. Uh, again, we didn't have a pot to piss in, so to speak. My father didn't, so he had no money to go to private school, so I went to a state school. And uh, I entered school there, uh, and uh, I was actually, uh, I was there for four years. Um, uh, tuition was $45 a semester, I remember that. It was terrific. It was great. I got a great education at UCLA. My major in my first two years was um, pre-med. Uh, my, uh, my parents wanted, you know, wanted me to become a nice Jewish doctor. And uh, they had, you know, my sisters uh, were moving along with their, uh, their education as well. But my parents, you know, being the only boy in the family, uh, felt that I should aspire to, uh, 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 and in those days, uh, 
a physician was the ultimate, the top, uh, you know, as a doctor that you, one could achieve. So I was a pre-med student, and I worked after school. You went to school up till 3 o'clock, and you started at 4 o'clock and worked to 8 hours to midnight. Uh, and I worked at a hospital. Uh, and I worked at Kaiser Foundation Hospital. And I was the night admitting supervisor. And I loved that job because I was a pre-med student. And one of the things I remember uh, vividly about that was um, I would bug the, uh, the doctor who was uh, the head doctor of the hospital. Every night I would bug him about the fact that I wanted to get into surgery. I wanted to get into, I wanted to see what that was all about. I would, all I did was work in an office and admit people to come into the, into the hospital, admit patients. So one night, I remember this vividly as well, he had uh, uh, admitted, I had admitted a woman who was pregnant and who was um, in labor. And I admitted her and she was pretty far along. And and the, I, so I called the head doctor and I said, it's a golden opportunity. It's very slow. There's no, you know, very slow on admitting people tonight. So I want to get up there. Give me a chance. Give me a <laughs> shot. So he finally said, all right, uh, you know, don't bother me anymore. Don't bug me. Uh, go uh, wash up, suit up, and meet me in the uh, delivery room. Are you sure this wasn't just an excuse to see your first woman naked? I had seen many women naked before that point. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, I did what he told me. I walked in. There were a bunch of nurses around and the doctor and the an anesthesiologist, et cetera. And, uh, and, when he, and so he said, stand off to the side. Don't bother me. I said, I said fine. Um, I was ecstatic to be in there. I was really nervous. And so he, did, uh, he took the scalpel to... Uh, uh, perform the uh, 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 something called an episiotomy on uh, for opening up the cervix there or the, to deliver the child or opening up the vaginal area. And as soon as he put the scalpel on the on the on the woman, uh, blood spurted out. I fainted dead away. <laughs> <laughs> I fainted dead away. Fell down on the floor of the delivery room, <laughs> and the next thing I remember is the head nurse standing over me with smelling salt awakening me. And the, when I was, was groggy, still on the floor, the doctor looked down at me and said, schmuck. He says, I got enough problems here. I don't need any problems with you as well. So go over there. And if you're going to have trouble with the blood, anyway, the bottom line, that told me that I was not, forgive the pun, cut out to be a doctor. <laughs> I was not cut out to be a physician. So I changed my major. <laughs> so when you saw the blood spurting out of the cash and prizes of this girl, were you like uh, afraid to be with women after that? No, it didn't bother me. Okay, just check. <laughs> so you wanted to change your profession. So what did you decide to change to? Well, I didn't change right away, uh, but it certainly was a message coming through loud and clear. And then I received at school in pre-med in, in the last semester of my sophomore year, I received in the, uh, in the midterm a failing grade in a class. I'd never received a failing grade in a class. I'd always had A's and B's. And this class was physiology. And that spoke out to me. That plus the, uh, the experience in the delivery room spoke out to me that maybe this was not for me. So I decided to take myself into the school counseling service at UCLA 
and put myself in the hands of the staff psychologist there and have him uh, uh, help me and guide me and advise me. Perhaps pre-med was not the major I should be focusing on. And he put me through a battery of aptitude and affinity tests. And they took, uh, each test was about two hours long. And there were about 30 of them. And I was carrying 18 units at the time at school. So I, it took about three, four months to get through all the tests. I did it in my free time. And then he invited me back into the room. And he had plotted, as a result of, the, result of these tests, he had plotted all my interests on a graph. And he showed me on the graph clearly that the results of these aptitude and affinity tests clearly showed that I had zero interest in any field of science. It was clear. And, uh, uh, and uh, I said, well, where are my interests? Where are my affinities? Uh, where are my passions? Uh, uh, and he said uh, that uh, you really are interested in business. That's really uh, interested in any form of business, uh, manufacturing. Uh, you liked advertising, uh, or at least your test showed that. You liked public relations. You, uh, uh, you like manufacturing and sales and finance. And he said, you can continue on with your pre-med, um, and perhaps you'll graduate, uh, finish uh, four years of pre-med, and maybe even go on to medical school. But even if you were able to make your way through medical school, uh, we, I would predict that once you became a physician that you would not want to practice medicine. You might go into some allied form of business uh, of medicine, such as hospital administration, or maybe you will uh, become a factor for uh, uh, handling physicians' monies uh, as a, a manager, a business manager, a factor over there. My mother wanted me to be a hospital administrator because of watching General Hospital. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, maybe... Uh, Maybe our parents knew each other, or maybe, or maybe just the Jewish uh, thing. Anyway, make long story short, I said, well, what are my, that, that helps me. And then he said to me, and one thing that your aptitude and affinity test showed that came out loud and clear was that you have a tremendous amount of trivial knowledge about the entertainment industry. And I was ignorant of that. I, I was totally ignorant of that. I was unaware of that. I went to movies, and I watched television, and I, I read books, and I, uh, you know, I, I certainly was aware of uh, of the media. I read newspapers, but uh, I had no idea that I was uh, that I had a tremendous amount of interest in entertainment. I went to the theater. I went to the theater a lot, actually, uh, starting early on in my uh, young years. I loved the theater. I loved musical theater. And I loved drama. And I loved comedies. And uh, so he suggested to me that I might consider changing my major. And I changed it to business administration there at UCLA. And my next two years, my major was in business administration for my junior and my senior years. And I was ecstatic. And I really loved that. And I, much to my parents' dismay, uh, of course, they thought I was crazy. They didn't understand about, uh, about uh, business. I mean, uh, what, what happened to your, your, we want this nice Jewish doctor in the family. Uh, Anyway. And so tell us how you went from that to getting your first job in entertainment. Well, I graduated eventually. In UCLA, in those years, they, had, um, they taught at an undergraduate uh, level. They taught uh, you could go into the School of Business Administration. Actually, it was the School of Letters and Science, and Business Administration was a major. 
and they taught all these various and sundry courses. And I loved what I did. I loved uh, the subject of manufacturing and sales and finance and uh, producing something and uh, marketing it. I really enjoyed that. And so when I uh, came close to my, I was coming out of my uh, last semester of my senior year, I had to figure out what the hell I was going to do with myself. And my parents had no contacts. I had no contacts, et cetera. And uh, so I began to read and talk to people about the entertainment industry. What aspect of the entertainment industry would I be best, best at? And quite frankly, um, I had no artistic talent. I wasn't a writer. I wasn't a performer. I wasn't an actor. I wasn't a director. I didn't have any of that talent or that ability. But I enjoyed business. And so as I began to talk to people and read books and study it more and more, and I had, at that point began to read the trade papers, uh, the Daily Variety and the Daily Hollywood Reporter, I would keep up to what was, I'd read the entertainment sections of the New York Times and the entertainment sections of the Los Angeles Times. And so I began to be more knowledgeable. Uh, and uh, uh, the subject of artist representation jumped out at me. And Was there something that you saw, a television show, a story you read that just sort of pointed you in that direction? Or was it just like a light bulb that went off? No, I read stories about talent agents, you know, and how every performer, every artist, had an agent. And that was a great look to me to be an interesting sort of a career path. I couldn't be in front of the camera and I didn't have any of these artistic talents. So behind the scenes appealed to me, um, behind the camera. And I was always very good with people. And I thought that would be an interesting approach. And uh, I thought sales would be, a, uh, I realized it was sales. Uh, that would be of interest to me. So Coming out of college, actually, I didn't go right to work. I went into the military. I went into the service. I went to the, into the U.S. Army. And uh, when I came out of the Army, uh, six months later, I was then in the, in the active reserves, I would then began to look for a job. And at UCLA, I was a member of a, of a fraternity. The fraternity was called ZBT. And I met up with a young man who was another ZBT there by the name of Bill Ziv, Z-I-V. And Bill Ziv came from, uh, uh, from Ohio. He came from Cincinnati. And his father was a man named Fred Ziv, Z-I-V. Uh, Fred, Frederick Ziv had, had an advertising agency and then had gone into television production in uh, Cincinnati and had been successful. He then started up, um, he opened up a small little studio in Los Angeles where he produced television shows. And in the early days of television, Bill Ziv and I were good buddies. We actually were roommates in our, uh, in our senior year. And I was introduced to his family and I talked to his father and the person who was running the uh, Los Angeles operation for him about when I graduated from college and got out of the military, out of the service, perhaps there would be a position available and something, I didn't know exactly what, but something where I could uh, put myself to work. And they said that would be great. And Bill Ziv was very supportive. Uh, when I got out of the military, I was in the station in San Antonio, Texas uh, for six months in the Medical Service Corps of all places, of all parts. Uh, anyway, 
I was a public information officer for uh, the Army in San Antonio, Texas, which was a great job. And uh, I went looking for Bill Ziv when I got out six months after graduation. And Bill had uh, left Los Angeles to move back to Cincinnati and had kind of disappeared. And so had this opportunity or potential opportunity at Ziv Television Productions. I had to fend for myself. Another old expression that you probably used, when the door closes... Yes. A window opens. A window opens. Where was the window? Well, what happened was I, uh, I had to find a job. And the entertainment industry beckoned, and talent agencies beckoned. And I, so I then read enough about the fact that there were two talent agencies who had agent and training programs at that point in time. I found that out by research. And they were the William Morris Agency and MCA. And I applied to both of those agencies. I had no contacts at either of those agencies. And I, so I called the personnel director and stayed after the personnel director at both of these places. Persistence, everybody. And they, um, I stayed after them and finally got an interview. And when I was interviewed there, I got past the, the personnel director. And the personnel director then turned to me and said, um, uh, well, you've successfully passed this first stage of the interviews, now you're going to have to meet with the department heads of the respective agencies. There are several people who approve anyone who comes into, our, into the mailroom. The mailroom, by the way, pay was $40 a week. Uh, there was no overtime paid. And uh, You made more when you were eight on the corner of the I newspaper. I made more money when I was in the newspaper business. That's right. $40 a week and uh, no overtime. But I aspired to this, and I wanted, to, I wanted desperately to get into this training program. I thought it was fantastic. So I went through the interviews. There were about 10 interviews at each of the respective places. And it took about three, four months to get through the interviews. And then I figured once I... And by the way, you could be rejected or blackballed any time along the way. If they didn't care for you, you were out of the, out of the process of, being, of the interview process. And eventually, I got passed through all of that. Then I got I figured they'd offer me a job. One of them would offer me a job after three, four months. And they said, I got a letter from uh, both the personnel directors saying that I was, congratulations, you successfully passed our, our interview process. Um, however, we have a number of people who are, uh, who are in this position. And uh, your name will add your name to the list. And when your name rises to the top of the list, We'll give you a call. Don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, how long might that be? And, uh, and the uh, personnel directors, both of them, that's, uh, they must have known each other, said, uh, we can't tell you. It could be three months, six months, could be a year, could be two years. You know, we, we, we really don't know. Um, so I said, uh, okay, just keep me in mind. <laughs> don't forget about me. And meanwhile, because I'd spent three or four months going through this process, my parents who were saying to me, for Christ's sake, get a job, you know. <laughs> you graduated UCLA, you're in the military. What's with the entertainment business? They knew nothing about the entertainment. They knew, if they, they knew nothing about the entertainment, and they knew less about artist representation. So I was uh, determined. Meanwhile, I took a job. I had to get a job. I had been working during the three or four months at Thrifty Drugstore in Los Angeles as a delivery driver, delivering uh, people who called in, ordering product, ordering stuff. From you ever deliver to a movie star? I did, who many was, times. Who was I worked out of the Beverly Hills um, 
office uh, or the Beverly Hills facility of Thrifty Drugstore, which was on the corner, then on the corner of Cannon and Wilshire Drive. And uh, I delivered to Bing Crosby. I delivered to his estate. Anyway, so I had to get a job. And my uncle, who was uh, married to my mother's sister, had a job at Thrifty Drugstore where he uh, bought housewares uh, for uh, the chain. There were about 50 or 60 uh, thrifty drugstores uh, throughout the state of California. And his job, uh, he bought housewares. He was a buyer and he dealt with uh, manufacturers um, and sales was his specialty. And he, um, he introduced me, uh, one, of, one of the products that he bought for the chain for housewares, for the housewares department, were power lawnmowers. And uh, he introduced me to the man, a man who, one of his uh, vendors who supplied power lawnmowers, uh, a man by the name of Maury Lober. I remember his name vividly. Uh, and Maury Lober had a factory in uh, Richmond, Indiana, where he produced power lawnmowers. Uh, he had a factory. They had two different shifts, two different eight-hour shifts, about 150 factory workers. Maury Lober had come from Cincinnati, Ohio, coincidentally himself, and had made his money in the junk business and then bought this power lawnmower manufacturing company. By the way, Richmond, Indiana is the power lawnmower center of the country. Just a little bit of trivia there. <laughs> and offered me this job. I met Mr. Lober. He said, come move to Richmond, Indiana. And I thought that was fantastic. I thought that was great. First of all, I was going to get a job while I waited for my name to rise to the top of the list, you know, at these two talent agencies. And I went to work there, and I loved that job. It was great. But Maury Lober hired me, and he, he, he kind of enticed me into the job by saying that I was, uh, we're going to hire you as assistant to the president of the G.W. Davis, the George W. Davis Power Lawnmower Manufacturing Company. So I thought that was a great title. And I went to work there, and... Uh, I did lots of different things with regard to producing lawnmowers. And I kept in touch with the two people at uh, the two personnel directors. And, and I'd say about uh, 14 or 15 months after I'd started working there in Richmond, Indiana. There was another reason I wanted to move to Richmond, Indiana, by the way, which, I thought, which was a intri intrigued me at the time, is I'd been raised in a metropolitan area in, uh, in Los Angeles. And, uh, I'd never been outside of Los Angeles, with the exception of in the service in San Antonio. And I wanted to see what the rest of the country was like. And here I was moving to the Midwest to see what, what people were like in the Midwest. I always had read that they had great values. And so I, I, that, that intrigued me, and that took, helped me make the decision to move there. Plus, there were a lot of farm girls in uh, the rural area there in Richmond, Indiana, with 25,000 people. What's the difference between a farm girl <laughs> and a girl from Los Angeles? They're much more open-minded. <laughs> okay. I like that. All I can tell you is that, you know, I was a city slicker in a rural farm area coming from the city. And uh, so I had my pick of the crop, so to speak. Got it. Anyway, so I, uh, about 15 months later, I got a phone call from the William Morris Agency, the personnel director. My name had risen to the top of the list. I had 72 hours to decide they were offering me the job, $40 a week. Do you want the job? And during the 
period of time of the interview process, that three-month process where I'd interview with 10 different people, the department heads at both of these respective agencies, my perception of the people who interviewed me at MCA was far superior to the people at the William Morris Agency. Uh, at least that was my perception. So I thought before I turned the job down at the William Morris Agency, I called MCA to be sure that my name was still in contention or consideration there. I remember the man's name vividly. He was the person of the right name. His name was Earl Zook, Z-O-O-K. And he said to me, yes, your name is still in consideration. And I said, well, I've been offered this job at the William Morris Agency. And he said, well, I can't tell you what to do. Uh, I, I said, well, I'll make a decision. I'll let you know. I then made a decision not to accept the job at the William Morris Agency and called him back and told him what I was doing. Please keep my name in consideration there. And uh, about four or five months later, he called and said, my name had risen to the top of their list, and uh, they had a job open for $40 a week. You had uh, 48 hours instead of 72 hours to make a decision. And I told him, I don't need the 48 hours. When do I start? Now, I was then making $125 a week. You went from making three times the amount of money and having all the farm girls you wanted to now going to this job, no farm girls, and a third of the money, and you took the job. Well, I hadn't. There's another part of that story is that the owner of the company, Maury Lober, who was married but never had any children, and his office was in New York City, which is where he operated his sales office, and he had salesmen all around the country. And he had people who ran his, uh, the plant superintendent and then the president ran the factory. He, I called him to tell him that I was going to be leaving. And he said, don't leave just yet. I'm going to fly in from New York and sit down and take you to dinner the next night. And he did that. And he, I was kind of like his son over that long, over that year, over his period of time. And he took me to dinner and he offered to double my salary to $250 a week if I would stay because he liked what I was doing and what I was, uh, what I was accomplishing. Over, I did a lot of things. I'm not even going to, that's a whole other conversation. I, I was responsible for so many things that, uh, in manufacturing at this. But he was like a mentor to you. He believed in you sort of going back to our cold open. And here the guy flies down, which back then cost a fortune to meet with you, a young guy making a tiny bit of money a week, and he offers to double your salary. So now you have 240 or $250 being offered versus 40 with something you really want to do. And how do you make the decision? Well, it was easy. I was, I was driven. I didn't want to live in Richmond, Indiana. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in Richmond, Indiana, producing lawnmowers. I wanted into the entertainment industry, and I was willing to take the risk, take the gamble, take a huge cut in dollars and cents. I moved back into my parents' home. I had to check with them to be sure it was okay to move back into, into the house. They had a place for me. We didn't have the, uh, had three, uh, three sisters, but we only had a two-bedroom house at that time. So I can I, imagine that conversation with your dad. Dad, I'm coming back home. I got a job in the entertainment business. I turned down 250 a week to take 40. He thought I was crazy, both my mother and my father. They thought I'd lost my mind. But I, but I, I made that choice. I made that decision, and I moved back to L.A. 
I went to work at MCA in the mailroom, uh, six positions in the mailroom. I was coming into the number six slot, and I uh, went to work there at uh, MCA in the mailroom. How and long went, did it take you to rise from number six to number one and to becoming an agent? It took about, I'd say about a year and a half, roughly, approximately. How many of the six quit? And how many went forward? I can't recall. I remember one fellow was fired. Uh, that I remember. Uh, <laughs> what was your biggest fuck up in the mailroom? That's a good question. At that time, uh, MCA had been founded by Jules Stein, who was still very much alive, and Lou Wasserman was the president. And Jules Stein lived up on the top of Angelo Drive, the very top of the hill, in Beverly Hills. And Part of the job of being in the mailroom was to pick up and delivery, and they had a, a fleet of cars outside in the parking lot there. And, and all five guys were out, and the telephone rings there, and it's Mr. Stein with a gruff voice. I'd only met him once or twice, but I, he says, who is this? I said, this is Harry Abrams, sir. And he said, uh, Abrams, you, you know where my house is? I want you to bring, go up to my assistant or my secretary upstairs, get, get a package of papers and bring them up to my house right away. I said, yes, sir. Now, the five guys were gone. I knew where the keys to the car were. Oh, oh he had, there were a fleet of cars outside and they were all uh, uh, taken with the guys, but there was a Mercedes 300 SL with the gull wings, which was his car. It was turquoise blue. I remember this vividly. I was shaking in my boots because I'd never done this. I knew how to get up to Mr. Stein's place. I ran outside. I got the package of papers, whatever I had to deliver. I, I went outside and I put the key into the side of the uh, car and the gull wings went up. I jumped in the car and assumed that you just turned on the ignition and the gull wings would go down. They didn't go down. They didn't go down. They stayed up. I was, I looked under the, I looked behind the steering column. I looked in the glove compartment. I looked under the seat. I looked under the dashboard. Couldn't figure out how to get the damn gold wings down. And I was schwitzing like there was no tomorrow. The sweat was, schwitzing is another term for sweat pouring off me. I thought this is the end of my job. I've only been here for a short time. <laughs> and now I'm going to lose my job because I can't get up to Mr. Stein to get his place. So throwing after about five, six minutes, throwing caution to the winds, the ignition, I, I turned on the motor. I proceeded to drive through Beverly Hills with the gull wings up. <laughs> <laughs> and I took the alleyways to be sure that I wasn't going to run into any cars. And I proceeded along... I remember this vividly. It's a true story, not exaggerating. Benedict Canyon got to Angelo Drive, went up Angelo Drive, and, and he lived at the top of the hill, and I was circling around the hill. And there was, when I drove into his house, his home, he had a gigantic big auto court, and he was up on the second floor of the balcony of his house, looking down at me as I drove the car. <laughs> and he says to me, this is the second time I was called schmuck, said, schmuck, <laughs> don't you, didn't you know how to get the gold wings down? I said, no, sir. I had not been checked out on that. I didn't know. And he said, listen, give me the papers. 
get out of here, you can walk back to the office. Wasn't that far, it was about a mile and a half, maybe two miles. And that was one of the things I remember vividly. Awesome. So talk about when you got promoted to be an agent. So I didn't, you didn't get promoted to become an agent at that point. What happened is you moved out of the mailroom onto a desk as an administrative assistant. That was the next step up from the mailroom. And whose desk did you get moved to? And that was a year and a half. I first moved onto the desk, I think, of Mickey Levy, who was then head of the television department. And then I moved soon thereafter onto the desk of a fellow named Noel Rubeloff and, uh, and another fellow who worked with him by named Dale Sheets. Dale Sheets and Noel Rubeloff worked in a specific end of the television business at MCA, and I worked on their desk. This is very significant to everybody about relationships and how they form. And that their specialty, their expertise, they, they focused in the commercial business, radio and television advertising, and they also represented talent in the reality business, in the hosting and MCs of shows and uh, game shows and quiz shows and audience participation shows and radio personalities, disc jockeys, and uh, that was their specialty in the television department. It wasn't dealing with actors and actresses. And that's the area that I worked in. And I worked as their assistant with Dale Sheets and Noel Rubeloff. And I learned that particular aspect of the business, a very specific end of artist representation. I remember uh, one of our clients who was very, very popular then was uh, very well known in commercials, was a fellow named Ed Reimers. And he was the spokesman for Allstate Insurance. And uh, the commercials were... Uh, you have the world in your hands or with Allstate. Uh, he was the spokesperson. He was one of our impressive clientele. But there were other clientele as well, like Ben Alexander, uh, who was a host of a show called About Faces. We represented Bob Barker, who was then the host of Truth or Consequences. We represented Tom Kennedy, Jack Nars, a lot of different people who were hosts and MCs. And that was a huge business at that time. Daytime television had several different game shows and quiz shows, audience participation shows. And that plus commercials and representing radio and television personalities, I represented people like Gary Owens. Gary Owens. The late Gary Owens, for those of you who don't know, and you can look him up, he was the announcer on Laugh-In. He'd have that famous thing where he'd have his hand in his ear and do the announcement. Of course, he was terrific. And he was on KMPC radio, and I negotiated him, uh, negotiated his deal for, with that. I eventually became, moved up from an assistant to becoming an agent in that department, a junior agent uh, at some point in that specific department. So I got involved with representation of people like Gary Owens and, uh, and these MCs and these hosts. And then what happened is uh, MCA went out of business as a talent agency. And why don't you tell our audience why they went out of business and how this involved a very famous presidential candidate and a guy who held a great position in office in the White House. So what happened was MCA was the top talent agency in the, in the world and uh, was very successful. And they uh, made all their money uh, with artist representation around the world. They had offices in many different cities. But they wanted more, and Lou Wasserman and Jules Stein wanted more. They wanted to move. Uh, they were 
it's expanding and growing their business. So they bought Universal Pictures. They bought Universal Pictures. They bought the studio, Universal, Universal Studios. They bought all of the motion picture assets that Universal Pictures owned, which was uh, the real estate. They had several sound stages out there. They bought the library of films that they had produced over many, many years. And they bought the reputation and the goodwill of that company. They also bought a television production company at the same time called Review, R-E-V-U-E, Review Television Productions. And that was at a, at a, a different studio, a different part of, a different section of real estate, but also was a successful television production company. When they bought those two companies, they then were in the motion picture and television production business, as well as they were continuing to work in the talent agency business. And... What happened is the William Morris Agency, and uh, there was another famous agency at that time called Famous Artists. It was uh, owned by a man named Charlie Feldman. Charlie Feldman, the famous artist, was another talent agency of, of, of about the uh, not exact same size as MCA or William Morris, but pretty far, pretty much up there. And uh, they um, they were having trouble. They were having trouble selling their clientele, getting their clientele seen, writers, directors, actors, at Universal and at Review, both these other talent agencies, these large talent agencies, because MCA, Universal Pictures, and Review Studios were buying all their talent from the parent company, from the talent agency. So they didn't need William Morris. They didn't need uh, famous artists. And they got pissed off, upset about it. And they filed a lawsuit against MCA, uh, claiming that they were they'd become a monopoly. They were in violation of the Sherman Clayton Antitrust Act. They are, should not be allowed to continue. And so that lawsuit proceeded, and it took about four four and a half years for it to eventually be decided, because it went it was decided at different levels, but it. Uh, but at each level, it was appealed to a higher authority. And um, it was during the uh, Kennedy administration. Uh, Jack Kennedy was president of the United States, and Robert Kennedy was his attorney general. It was during that administration that the decision came down from the attorney general's department, finally from the federal courts, that MCA, you can't stay in both businesses. You are in violation of Sherman Clayton Antitrust Act. And you have to make a decision, either stay in the talent agency business or stay in the motion picture and production and television uh, business. And it was an easy decision for MCA, the parent company at that point, because the revenue was about 80 or $90 million that year, sales revenue coming into the motion picture and television studio. This is way back when. This is 1962, I think. And the revenue, uh, the income in that uh, previous year in the talent agency business was only about $8 million. So it was easy for them to make a choice. They chose to, MCA, the parent company, chose to stay in motion picture and television production with Universal Pictures and Review Television Productions. And they had to uh, divest themselves of the talent agency division of the agency. And so there was a date by which this was going to take place. And... Uh, all of the, the agency was going to be disenfranchised by the unions, the guilds, Screen Actors Guild, AFTRA, Actors' Equity Association, the Writers Guild of America, the Directors Guild of America, were all going to disenfranchise MCA so they couldn't stay in the talent agency business. And um, So what was your next move? Well, 
I saw it as a golden opportunity. The directive coming down from the federal government was that you couldn't fire or terminate the agents, that were the employees of the company. You had to offer them all jobs, they told the parent company, MCA, had to offer them all jobs in production, motion picture, television production. You couldn't just fire them. And so every agent was offered this opportunity, including myself, and including Dale Sheets and Noel Rubeloff, who I worked with in, in that department. And uh, Noel Rubeloff and myself decided, uh, Dale Sheets stayed on with the company, and Noel Rubeloff and I decided we would, this was a golden opportunity for us to go out and open up our own business because all of the talent that we were representing in our specialized and that expertise, or we had the expertise in, had no agents, had no representatives. Uh, there were loads of talent agencies that were sniffing at the door and were, were anxious to get those agent, uh, actors uh, or those performers or clients of MCAs and were after our people. But what a golden opportunity this was to open up our own business, I felt. And I convinced Noel Rubeloff of this, and we decided we would do that. But not only we did, but a number of other agencies uh, uh, were formed out of that relationship. And this uh, new agency that you formed focused mostly and exclusively the on the areas of commercial voiceover and on-camera. Hosts and, and MCs and game shows, quiz shows, radio personalities, television personalities. And so you did really well together. But as I remember correctly, things were going well, but you had higher aspirations of just commercials and radio and on-camera and hosting. Yes, that's correct. Uh, it was about 10 or 12 years later. I mean, I, I really uh, wanted to do more than that. Uh, uh, I wanted to diversify. What caused me to change my thinking about that by diversification, or two things caused me to change my thinking about that. One was that I moved to New York to open up a New York branch of Abrams Rubeloff, uh, and Rubeloff stayed out here and I stayed and I went to New York. And, uh, and at my life in New York, uh, I spent a lot of time in the theater, and I became very enamored of actors and actresses uh, in, that, in that period of time. That was, was a major factor that uh, came into play of, of opening up, uh, of diversifying, and played a hand in it. Plus, there was another thing that I found and had developed these wonderful actors and actresses, or I found them as actors and actresses, or I developed them in commercials, and they became important in motion pictures and television as a result of... Uh, you couldn't participate. I couldn't participate. Not only couldn't I participate, but when... I represented them commercially, and if they were now the star of a television series or a star of a feature picture, or let's just focus on television for a moment, when I, if they went into, because of the result of my uh, representing them or our company representing them and making them into huge, important entities commercially, uh, and then they went into performing as actors and actresses in a television series, the network would not allow them to do television commercials. It was, they were restricted in their contract, their employment contract. You're, you couldn't do television commercials because we're selling television shows or selling advertising, and conceivably there could be a conflict of interest. If you're, if you're the spokesperson, if you're, if you're the star of the television series or are a spokesperson for a particular product, and... Uh, and an advertiser wants to buy onto our television series, they can't because it would conflict with it. So 
They wouldn't allow them to do that. And that also was frustrating to me because we had gotten them up to earning a lot of money and now we were cut off. So that plus my experience in New York caused me to say, we should be in the theatrical business. And you approach your partner and... Rubeloff was totally against it. He wanted nothing to do with it. It was a, for, a totally foreign agency uh, form of representation. We'd never been in that business before. He didn't want to go into it. He we, wasn't a risk taker. He was, I was more the gambler and the risk taker than he was. All right. So what's your next step? So I, uh, I quit. Wait, uh, time out. One of the things you should know that's very challenging for anybody who moves positions, like for instance, let's say you work at the furniture store and you have a great job at the furniture store selling furniture and you quit, you go work in another furniture store and you start participating right away in business and you make the same amount of money, if not more, than you made in the last furniture store. If you're in the theatrical business and you have a body of business that you've done where you're working on and deals that are going and you quit, those deals don't come with you. And if they do come with you, you have to do some serious negotiating with the people who you worked with to get them to come with you because you quit. It's not a question where it was something where, hey, let's both talk together about kind of working things out and you do this and you take that. When you quit something, a lot of times you don't have a leg to stand on of participating in things and deals that you've done that are ongoing for a long time. You may be able to take a client, let's say Harry was representing somebody like Gary Owens, and maybe Gary Owens was his point person. But Gary Owens had done a radio deal at KNBC, let's say, and it's a three-year deal. If Harry takes Gary Owens with him to his new company, yes, he's going to get Gary Owens' new business. But now he's got to negotiate with his partner if he's going to be able to get out of any of Gary Owen's old business because he's quitting. So it's a very risky thing to do. Yes, 100% correct. But I took those chances. I took that. I was a gambler. I was a risk taker. And I figured that I could hopefully take a clientele with me who would, uh, I could put to work in other, other forms of, uh, of income if they were on the radio as a host in, uh, or if they were on a game show or I could put them to work in, uh, ad for advertising and in commercials, earning money, uh, negotiating deals for them that they'd never seen before. They'd never, it had not existed in previously at Abrams Rubloff. And that was a uh, chapter in my life that was uh, very, very difficult because uh, Rubloff, who was my senior and had been my mentor, uh, he was seven or eight years older than I was uh, when I joined MCA or when I went into that department at MCA. He was... Uh, I had always kind of deferred to him because he was older than I was. Leaving him or considering leaving him was very difficult. But at the time, I had hired this fellow named Don Buckwald. Don Buckwald, for those of you who don't know, is Howard Stern's agent and is the CEO and president, like Harry, of the Don Buckwald Agency, which has offices in New York and L.A. I was training him into the business. And uh, uh, he'd actually been working for a few years as an agent, but I was training him into our particular areas of the business. He had not, I think he'd been an actor's agent maybe up to that point. But he worked with me and I, we did very well. He worked for me, worked for Abrams Ubloff for maybe four or five years. And he was doing extremely well, responding to the training. I was running back and forth between New York and LA. 
But I had really settled in New York. I thought New York was fantastic. I really enjoyed it, and our business was thriving at Abrams Rubloff. Uh, and I wanted Don Buckwald to have more. Uh, he was being paid. A, I had negotiated a great salary with him, but wanted him to um, earn more money or, or perhaps even have a taste or a piece of the business, an equity in the company at Abrams Rubloff. And so I'd fly out to, New York, uh, to Los Angeles to talk with Rubloff about this, and I've talked about it many different times, and Rubloff was dead set against it. He said, uh, we're not about to give him any business. Uh, you know, uh, Abrams Rubloff, uh, I had 50% ownership, and he had the other 50% ownership. He said, if you want to give him any equity in the business, you can give him part of your 50%, but not, uh, not any of mine. And we argued about this for ad infinitum for a good year or two. Uh, and I tried and tried and tried. And we had a buy-sell agreement. Uh, it was interesting. It was a partnership. It wasn't a corporation. It was a partnership. And eventually, I got to the point of where I came to the conclusion that I was going to leave because there, was a, there were other reasons also why I, why I was going to leave because Rubeloff was running our L.A. office and he wasn't working that hard. And he uh, spent a lot of time with photography and went out on photographic haunts or uh, jaunts uh, for periods of time and wasn't generating enough revenue to keep up his half of the um, agency. And so I um, decided, I sat down with him and uh, we couldn't work anything out. And so what I did, I sat down with Don Buckwald, who I'd grown very close to at that time because he'd been kind of like my son or my brother or my younger brother, and I taught him the business. And I really had a lot of faith in him, and he had cottoned to this side of the business, uh, uh, to uh, the representation in the areas that we were specializing in, commercials and hosts and radio personalities, etc. And I sat down with him and let him know that I'm going to go out to Los Angeles. Uh, I'm going to spend six months, confront Rubeloff on this, and hire attorneys or people to analyze the value of the company. And if I'm not able to get him to give up any equity in, the, in, the, in Abrams Rubloff to you, you and I are going to go into business together. I'm going to leave Abrams Rubloff and I'm going to go into business with you, Don Buckwald. And we had a long four or five hour dinner at the Friars Club in New York City that night. And I told him what I was going to do was going to transfer over the loyalty and the allegiance of all of our clientele in New York City to him, telling the clients that I was going to go out to Los Angeles because I had business to take care of. And I'm not exactly sure when I would be back, but Don Buckwald here will take care of you and look after you. And I told him that's what I was going to do. And we proceeded along those lines and with the idea in mind that if I wasn't successful with Rubeloff after I left New York to go out to trying to get an equity position for Don Buckwald, that I would resign and he and I would go into business, just Don Buckwald and myself and whomever agents or clients we would take with us. So I did that and I kept him abreast daily of what progress or lack of progress I was having with Rubeloff. So he was definitely well informed and we got to the point where I couldn't do it any longer. I was unable to convince Rubeloff. So I notified Rubeloff that I was going to resign. And I called Don Buckwald to tell him when I made that decision. 
and he didn't return the phone call. I called him two or three more times over the next few days. He didn't return the phone call. And I was furious, needless to say. And I uh, sent him telegrams, wouldn't even respond to me. It was evident what had taken place that during that several months that I was negotiating with Rubloff to try to get him an equity position, he had grown very close to the clientele at Abrams Rubloff. And he really felt that he didn't need me to go into business. He was doing well on his own. And he had all these deals and contracts that were in existence. And so I flew to New York after about a week or 10 days of him not responding to me. And I confronted him, walked into his office. Did he know you were walking into his office? No. I confronted him, sat down with him, and told him what I was going to do or what I had done. And well, back uh, up. You walk into his office, and what transpires before that? How does he respond? Well, he was shocked. He was surprised that I would presented myself, you know, and closed the door. You know, we weren't going to get into physical violence or anything of that nature. But he was getting checks that were under the auspices of Abrams Rubilov. You were his boss. Yeah. Well, I wasn't his boss after I resigned. No, you weren't. Okay, keep going. It was evident to me, uh, his response was, you know, maybe I don't want to go into business with you. I don't really want to start up a business. I'm very content. I'm very happy here, he said. Things are going okay for me here at Abrams Rubloff, so I'm going to stay here. Why did he say he didn't return your phone calls or your telegrams? Because he was embarrassed, guilty. He didn't want to return my phone call. He didn't want to have to deal with the fact of confronting the fact of us going into business together. He didn't, he didn't want to do that. But wouldn't it have been less stressful if he had just got on the phone and said, Harry, I feel horrible, but I don't think I want to do that anymore? Yes, of course it would have, but you're going to the heart of the individual, aren't you? You're going to the heart of the individual himself, what was actually in, in his mind and in his heart. It was uh, deceitful, uh, if we put it in one word there. Anyway, make a long story short, I was flabbergasted. I was floored. Here I was. I had resigned. I had no clientele, no business, nothing. And uh, no money from the business. No money from the business. No. Uh, so you're starting at scratch again. Starting at scratch again. 100% correct. What were the Los Angeles Times papers selling for then on the corner? About a quarter maybe <laughs> at that time. <laughs> anyway, I um, and I... I had nothing from Abrams Rubloff. I had to eventually sue, uh, litigate against uh, Noel Rubloff for my 50% ownership. And just so you know, everybody, when you litigate, if you're owed $100,000 or less, your litigation fees are going to be more than 100000 even if it's 200000 So you fight for something, even if you have a quarter of a million dollars you're fighting for, by the time you get it, you paid your lawyers about 175000 You can probably make $75,000, and all you have is the satisfaction that you've gotten something. So I started the litigation, uh, retained attorneys to do, handle it, uh, and, um, and then I couldn't just sit around and spend all, every, all my 
24 hours a day f focusing on litigation, I opened up my own little business. And uh, couldn't use my name, by the way. The Screen Actors Guild wouldn't allow me to use Abrams. Uh, uh, I opened up a business in Los Angeles and in New York. Uh, no, in, uh, I've opened it up in New York. I had been living in New York at that point. Uh, I had gone back and forth. And uh, so they wouldn't, the Screen Actors Guild would not allow me to use uh, Abrams couldn't use Harry Abrams because there was another talent agency which was in existence at that time called Abrams Ruloff. And they had the right, it was a corporation by that point, it had moved from a partnership to a corporation. So I couldn't use my name. So the case was, I had to use, I, I titled the new company HA Artists and Associates. And um, I began to, I couldn't touch the clientele who were at, at Abrams Ruloff, they were all under contract. I had to wait for them to, uh, for their contracts to expire to have anything to do with them. Me, but in addition to that, I'd let, turned a lot of this over to Don Buckwald and, and Abrams Rubloff in New York, turned all the clientele over. Uh, anyway, to make a long story short, I uh, opened up HA Artists and Associates in Los Angeles, I mean in New York, and I hired a fellow in Los Angeles by the name of Steve Carbone. I don't know if you ever encountered him. Uh, who had worked for the uh, had previously worked for the company? I hired him to open up a, a small office for me and uh, for us in Los Angeles, and I uh, started functioning as an agent while the lawsuit proceeded. The lawsuit took about another four and a half, five years. Uh, I didn't have any of that in uh, any of that uh, my share of the ownership until that was finally decided, and uh, I proceeded to. Start my own business in New York, and I began to sell talent, market talent, not only in, in commercials, but also in motion pictures and television. And I became, uh, I had uh, done very well in New York City in representation of actors and actresses in another form of television, which was very popular at that time, daytime television. Daytime television dramatic serials, soap operas. And I had represented a lot of actors and actresses in soap operas, which were... Uh, uh, which was closely allied to commercials because the biggest producer of soap operas at that time was Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble produced maybe six or seven different soap operas, and they also sold soap, and they sold all kinds of products. So I was representing uh, talent that worked in commercials for Procter & Gamble. They also represented, and those same types of talents were able to be marketed in soap operas. So I was representing people like Susan Lucci. Susan Lucci, who was probably the biggest name in, in daytime television on the show called All My Children, was one of my clients. Uh, and I, but I couldn't represent her at, uh, at uh, Abrams Ruboloff because I wasn't there any longer. So I had to persuade her and convince her to come over to me but I couldn't participate in the commission on the ABC television daytime deal until it expired or until it was renegotiated. And at that point, I eventually was able to participate. And for those of you who don't know this, when a lot of agencies go after other clients to take them away from other agencies that are on sitcoms, you oftentimes wonder, well, why is he going after this person, that person? They're on a series. They have a six-year, seven-year deal. And they waited out. They waited out for a renegotiation or the end of the contract when they can renegotiate it. And the old agency will participate in the money 
that that artist makes up until that amount of money that they made on that final contract the most and then any additional money the new company takes and commissions off of. So Harry, I'll skip forward and take me to Abrams, Harrison, Goldberg. Well, what happened is uh, I built up the agency in New York City and uh, hired uh, other agents in training and then elevated them to junior agent positions. And, uh, and our agency flourished. As a matter of fact, it flourished so much that if sooner at some point, Noel Rubeloff had to close up Abrams Rubeloff in New York City. Don Buckwald, at that point, decided to go out on his own and open up his own agency. He took one of his radio personalities that I had taught him how to represent by the name of Howard Stern. And uh, So you were working with Howard Stern in the very early days with Don. You know what? I've quite frankly forgotten. It might have been right about that same uh, time. It could have been after or shortly after. I wasn't working with him, but... Uh, Maybe Don Buckwell. Were you was. smiling a little bit more when Rubeloff went out of business? 100% correct. When he had to close up Abrams Rubeloff in New York City, he closed up the office. He couldn't compete any longer because I was taking, I was doing, I was competing against him then at that point. And yes. And was, you worked harder than I him. Worked, uh, I built up a business. He couldn't uh, run that business any longer, Rubeloff, so he closed up the you office. You worked harder than him. Anyway. I'm not. You said you went back to L.A. and you noticed that he wasn't working that hard. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. I'll just give you a little sidelight about that. I litigated against him while I continued to operate my own business there in New York City. And uh, this is before Abrams, Harris, and Goldberg. And it took a long time. It went through many different phases of uh, the judicial system. The wheels of justice grind out very slowly. And uh, he eventually lost, uh, eventually was ordered to pay my 50% of the ownership equity in the company about a year and a half, maybe almost two years later, at Superior Court in Los Angeles. And he appealed it to the appellate court. So it went to the next level. It took about another year and a half for them to hear the case. And they eventually ordered him, confirmed the lower court's decision, ordered him to pay it, and they attached interest to the amount that he had to pay for my 50% equity or ownership in the company. And as oftentimes happens, everybody, by the time the decision is made, a lot of times people don't have any money anymore. So meanwhile, what happened is he appealed it to a higher authority above the appellate court. He went to the Supreme Court, state of California, and that took about another year and a half. So, I mean, it as I say, it took about four and a half years to get through this whole thing. And finally, the Supreme Court would not even hear the case, ordered him to pay it, gave him 30 days to pay it, uh, or else they would liquidate, liquidate the business and divide up the assets between me and him, the 50% equity holders. And that was a law that was, uh, had just come into play in that year, um, that it's in the law books, the statutes. Uh, I established the statute. It's there in the, in the law books. It's referred to frequently. Uh, it's in a partnership where uh, if two partners cannot agree to uh, the division of what the value of the company is, one has to litigate against the other. And, and when the decision comes down, how the value is determined is you have to appoint an appraiser and there are th uh, three different appraisers that are appointed, one on the 
on the claimant side, one on the defendant side, and then they appoint an independent, a third party uh, appraiser who's totally independent. And the three of them get together, research, do the valuation, report back to the court of what the valuation is to the judge. He takes a mean average of the three and then orders him to pay it. That's what that, that law, that statute, I forget that it has a number on it, is, uh, is in the law books. As a matter of fact, it's, it's considered to be a textbook case because it's taught at UCLA in the law school in, the, in, the, in partnerships. Did you get all your money? I got my money eventually, yeah. Awesome. I, oh, I did, I did. Uh, uh, there's another reason why uh, he had the money. It, uh, it wasn't only the money, but we had, uh, I had brought into the, uh, into the company uh, a couple pieces of real estate that I had owned, but I wanted the company now to be the owner. The company would pay for it, mortgage, uh, mortgages, et cetera. One was a vacation home in Lake Tahoe, another was a piece of Malibu a beach house, et cetera. So, so those had value. He, he was able to sell those in order to sell that real estate in order to pay me the money that he owed. And he paid me the money he owed, and, uh, and that took place. And then uh, six months later, I'm there in New York in February, about two degrees below zero. And I go out for dinner with my wife. I come back, and there are 10 voice messages on my voicemail. Uh, we didn't have voicemail in those days. It was an answering machine. They were all 10 from different people in Los Angeles who had worked for me, worked for Abrams or Rubloff, who I'd never been allowed to see or to make any communicate with or have any contact with. And um, what had happened is that uh, uh, Noel Rubloff, at 52 years of age, had uh, gone into heart surgery at St. John's and had died on the operating table. And uh, it was a shock to me, just complete shock. And, uh, and here were my 10 calls from employees telling me what had taken place. And I was devastated. Because all the years that we had been in, against each other in, uh, uh, in the courts, uh, I'd never had wished any ill will upon him. This was a business transaction. It really was, uh, even though we disagreed with each other, we argued with each other, our attorneys argued with each other. I was always willing to settle. He didn't want to settle. Anyway, the bottom line was that uh, here I take this phone call and I'm, uh, I'm devastated. And, um, but I didn't pause more than, as my wife remembers telling me this story, maybe more than four or five minutes and I picked up the phone and made reservations to fly out to Los Angeles to attend his funeral. Even though I didn't care for him, I just felt that uh, I had to at least say my goodbyes because we'd been together at MCA and we'd been together for many years at that point. And, uh, and that's what took, uh, I, I did that. Uh, and that's even a, another sidelight to that was that I, um, I was afraid when I flew out to Los Angeles that I would be shunned. I would be, they'd have a security guard that wouldn't allow me into the, into the uh, funeral services. They were being held at the cemetery, which is behind, uh, which is there in Westwood. It's called the Westwood Cemetery where Marilyn Monroe is, is buried behind the um, motion picture theater. There's a, a, a cemetery back there. And, uh, and I, I walked, I remember getting off the plane. It was, 
I, I was leaving two degrees below zero and I came out to 80 degrees sunshine in Los Angeles. It was great. I walked into the mortuary, into the chapel. There were eulogies being written. I mean, being spoken and uh, delivered. It took about an hour, hour and a half. I stayed in the very back of the chapel. And when the services were over, I walked out of the chapel and this uh, buzzing sensation started in the bottom of my feet. Prior to this, when I was on the airplane the day before, I was up at about 35,000 feet and I opened up the Daily Variety and I read the obituary and it says, Noel K. Rubeloff, sole owner of Abrams Rubeloff and Associates, had, had died such and such. And I read that. And I, I'm there at 35,000 feet, and I'm thinking to the man upstairs, I'm saying, geez, maybe I killed him. Maybe I'm responsible for his death. And I felt somewhat guilty. Now, back to walking out of the mortuary, walking out of the chapel. The buzzing sensation starts at the bottom of my feet, makes its way up through my legs, up through my stomach, up through my chest, up through my neck, and up through my head, and out as I'm walking out into the sunshine, into that beautiful garden-filled cemetery, as the buzzing sensation, I felt I was going to faint. So I've never had this feeling in my life, with the exception of fainting on the floor there of the hospital. And I then realized at that point, when it left me, that I, had, I hadn't killed him at all. He'd killed himself. Vengeance, vengeful. Hell hath no fury as a scorned woman. Hell hath no fury as a scorned partner. So it was a very emotional moment. Anyway, but uh, it was at least a release for me that I had not killed him, that I wasn't responsible for his death. Anyway, so I continued on in Los Angeles, I mean, in New York. Our agency uh, was successful. Now, here's an interesting thing for you morally. Because the guy passes away. Obviously, you have enormous ties to all of the clients that he has, many of them you worked with in the past. So at what point after he passes away do you start making phone calls to some of the clients that he worked with that you worked with? Uh, I don't believe I did. Uh, our business flourished in New York City in the theatrical uh, agency business, representing actors and actresses for motion pictures, television and theater, and commercials, and these other areas that we were in. And I felt uh, that I, once I'd gotten this money from uh, the resolution of the Abrams Rubloff case or suit, I decided that I wanted to open an office in Los Angeles. But I couldn't be in both places at, at the same time. So I had. Uh, I had, during this period of time I was building the agency in New York, I had a corresponding agency, uh, affiliate agency relationships with three or four different agencies in Los Angeles. And the Gersh Agency was one of the agencies that I had the affiliation with, uh, as well as I had it with Cuban uh, Olnick, and I had it with uh, Wally Hiller, and two or three other agencies. And two of the guys who worked at the Gersh Agency were uh, Scott Harris and Howard Goldberg. And they were, uh, they were guys that were younger guys, and I had a nice association, nice, I mean, nice relationship with them, business relationship. So I offered them an opportunity. 
to uh, open up an office for us in Los Angeles. I had enough money now I could afford to open an office in Los Angeles, and I hired them, paid them salaries, and, and they left the Gersh Agency and opened up uh, the agency in Los Angeles. And I called it, I could have just simply called it, uh, by the way, eventually I got my name, rights to use my name back, especially when Rubloff went out, of, Abrams Rubloff went out of business in New York City. I was able to now rename and retitle our company called Abrams Artists. And I hired them. I had the office in New York, which the corporation was called Abrams Artists, and I opened up an office in Los Angeles, and I hired them, and I decided to put their name on the door of Abrams, Harris, and Goldberg. And the reason I did that was that under Screen Actors Guild regulations, when you sign an agency contract of representation, the principal or principals of the company have to be in each office. And in New York, I was obviously in New York, but I couldn't be in Los Angeles. So when I hired these guys, I had to put their names on the door, even though they had no equity interest in the company. So that came back to hurt you again later on, because later on... About four that... and a half years later, yeah, uh, 100% correct. So now... Was they that... decided to go out on their own. Was that more amicable, where there was no litigation, they went off on their own and you... No, uh, there was, uh, uh, they went out on their own, uh, but I had to uh, arbitration against them for a lot of the clientele that I brought into the company, to Abrams, Harris, and Goldberg. They took with them to Harris Goldberg. They took it over to, took them to Harris Goldberg. People like uh, Liam Neeson, I brought Liam Neeson to them uh, at that time. I found him in London and brought him to Los Angeles. Uh, and there were other, several others. Anyway, to make a long story short, I, uh, uh, we set up Abrams, Harrison, Goldberg, or Abrams, Harrison, Goldberg, uh, flourished. Uh, uh, I, um, they, they were much younger than I was, and they didn't know how to run a business, so I would, uh, in, I would spend one week in New York and one week in L.A. and one week in New York. And one, in the first year, I went back and forth an awful lot. And, but teaching them how to run a, uh, how to run a talent agency uh, business. And, uh, and the company flourished. It did, it did very, very well. Uh, and, uh, and in New York, we had a company called Abrams Artists Agency. And in Los Angeles, I had a company called Abrams, Harris, and Goldberg. And then eventually, they went out on their own, four and a half years later. And that's when I moved back to Los Angeles from New York at that time. And... Uh, we had employed at Abrams, Harris, and Goldberg. We started out in training uh, Connie Tavel. We started training um, uh, Steve Levitt. We trained, um, see, Connie Tavel, Steve Levitt. We trained uh, uh, Nina Pakula and Joel King. Gabrielle Kringle, who owned a domain agency. She passed away, unfortunately, recently, about uh, three, four months ago. She's uh, so young. Yeah, she was a young woman. She was in her 50s, early 50s, yeah. Uh, died of uh, cancer, oh. uh, some form of cancer. Anyway, make a long story short, uh, I had trained all these terrific people, you know, who were at Abrams, Harris, and Goldberg. And uh, so when they left, they left with those agents. They all went with them because I was in New York. But I was now in L.A., but they... Their allegiance and their loyalty was to Scott and Howard, uh, Harrison Goldberg. 
And that's what they did. They went off and they formed their agency called Harrison Goldberg, which they didn't keep that name on it too long, uh, maybe about six months. Then they changed it to Innovative Artists is what they called it. Which is now one of the top 10 agencies in the country as well. Right. And that's Scott Harris, who's a very, very driven person like Carrie as well. And we don't have to spend too much time on Scott. Just suffice to say that he's a very intense person. It's a different person than I am. He's a different sort of personality yeah. than I am. And, uh, but the one thing about Scott that's always fascinating, like Harry, sort of a risk taker and dance to the beat of a different drummer. And just to let you know what crazy kind of risk taker he is, regardless of what Harry thinks of him, he made a decision to build a building for his agency on a residential street in Santa Monica. And when you go to Innovative Artist, and it's a beautiful building, a beautiful property, but you're driving up and there's houses, kids on lawns. It's just crazy. Anyway. I'm not a fan of Scott Harris. Uh, I, I wasn't a fan of Howard Goldberg. It's it, interesting sidelight again is that because uh, these guys really did me wrong. I felt they did me wrong. And uh, they're stealing away in the middle of the night, you know. People are not calling it back. They're not returning your letters. They're packing up in the middle of the night and moving out. But you know what? That's the story of any talent agency. If you had to say that there's one fault of yours, one thing that you did, one pattern that you continued that possibly fueled this kind of behavior, what was your part in all these bad things? I trusted people. That's it. I trusted people too much. So there was nothing that you did that they said to you, well, Harry, let me tell you why we stole out in the middle of the night. It's because when we wanted this, 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 and this, you didn't give it to us and we felt we deserved it. That never arose. Got it. Okay. You were Abrams artist in LA, a beautiful building. He was for like 30 years, it seemed like you were at the Luckman building on 9200 Sunset and your company just moved. I couldn't believe it. I heard your company moved to a new Pacific building. Design Center, the Red Building. The Red Building, beautiful, innovative, unique building with a lot of publicity firms there. I don't understand at this stage of the game, you have a great relationship with that building. No matter how much they try to raise the rent, I know you're a negotiator and I know you negotiated good deals. What, did somebody take over and just try to raise the rent double or what happened? Well, new owners came in. Luckman died. Uh, Mr. Luckman died. Uh, well, that's and uh, uh, he wasn't, didn't own the building any longer. His heirs, his three sons, who were all ne'er-do-well sons, didn't want to own the building, didn't want to run it. Uh, and they uh, sold it, and they sold it to... Uh, Persian family, a Persian Jewish family, the Manny brothers. And the Manny brothers have done a great job with the building. They've put in a little, several million dollars refurbishing the building. That's it's right. Up on the top floor is the fabulous Soho House. Soho House. But the, the bottom line was uh, our lease was up and uh, we ran out of space. We were growing too fast. Oh, so it was you who made the decision? Well, I made the decision, yeah. Oh. I, 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 they didn't have any more space for us. Uh, we needed to, we needed about 35, 40% more space and they didn't have it. And so we went out looking for a new space and found this space. Do you like it? I love it. It's great space. And you still have the corner office? I still have a corner office. Nice. <laughs> All right. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. 
I want you to tell me a word, a sentence, anything that comes to mind, maybe a story. Ready? Bob Barker. Bob Barker was the host of Truth or Consequences when we took, uh, represented him. And uh, he, I don't have any particular story. Uh, this was during the days I originally met him at MPA. And then uh, I believe we represented him at Abrams Ubloff, but I never had hardly any dealings with him. Seymour Cassell. Seymour Cassell is an actor, an outstanding character actor that we took on for representation. Famous uh, for the John Cassavetes films. Unfortunately, he's uh, fallen on ill health and uh, he's not doesn't work that much anymore. But a terrific actor. Dick Enberg. Dick Enberg is a talent that I took on for representation at Abrams Rubeloff. Uh, he was uh, working at KTLA as a uh, uh, as a weekend sports reporter. And I took him on for representation and um, made him the voice of the Los Angeles Angels ba uh, baseball team and the voice of the Los Angeles Rams um, uh, football team, and then uh, made a deal for him with uh, CBS and eventually lost him to someone else. But a terrific guy and uh, still works today uh, as a sportscaster. Laugh-ins Artie Johnson. Artie Johnson was another one of the people besides Gary Owens that I represented. Uh, Artie Johnson was a great talent on-camera commercials and voice commercials. Really outstanding guy. Still around. Regis Philbin. Regis Philbin is a fellow we took on. He was a local guy here in... Uh, uh, um, KHJ Television uh, on Channel 9 here. And we took him on for representation. And uh, represented him as a host, MC, uh, et cetera, and uh, the rest is history. Bob Eubanks. Bob Eubanks was a talent that, again, all these, a lot of these people fall into that category of uh, hosts and reality and uh, game shows and quiz shows, MCs. That, and Bob Eubanks was a guy that we represented. He was on KRLA uh, radio, found him, and sold him to. Uh, Chuck Barris and ABC to become the voice of the newlywed game. Matter of fact, Bob Eubanks just the other day retired. If any of you watched, or you probably didn't watch this, but January 1st, uh, Bob Eubanks had been for the past 15, 20 years with Stephanie Edwards, another of our former clients, the host on Channel 5 on KTLA of the Rose Parade. They just did their last Rose Parade this past uh, January 1st. Jim Lang. Jim Lang was a fellow who I found again in, I found him in San Francisco. Host of the dating game, right? And sold him, made the deal for him with Chuck Barris to be the host of the dating game. He was on KSFO in San Francisco. Great guy. Wink Martindale. Wink Martindale is another fellow who came off of KFWB radio, a host, good looking guy. We've had him work on many different daytime shows. Jacqueline Smith. Jacqueline Smith, well, that's a great story. We moved now away from, we moved away from uh, the hosting and MC arena, and now we're moving into the actors and actress area. Uh, Jacqueline Smith was a girl I found in New York City. Country girl? No, she wasn't a rural country girl. She wasn't from Richmond, Indiana. She was from Houston, Texas. And she, uh, I found her uh, in uh, Central Park one day uh, with my wife and my uh, my two sons, we were there for a picnic, and she had just come up there. She was trying to get in the New York City Ballet. She worked for Houston Ballet. Young girl, 17, 18 years of age, and uh, 19. Uh, and my son, uh, my uh, eldest son, uh, who was then about 
two and a half or three, toddled over to this group of dancing girls who had danced there in Central Park, taking a break for a soda, have a soda. And this one girl took a particular shine to him. I went over to rescue the girls from him. And this girl had taken this shine to him and just I thought he was, uh, uh, he was such a cute little boy. I thought she was exquisite looking. And I said to her, might you ever consider working in radio or television or in television commercials? She said, no, I'm here to go for the ballet. And I said, well, I think you'd make a great television commercial spokesperson. Here's my card. If you change your mind, give me a call. Two weeks later, she called. She came into the office. I took her on for representation and made her into the top commercial spokeswoman into the, in, in the country. In addition to that, Aaron Spelling came along with a pilot called Charlie's Angels and said, I want that girl who did the Gold Formula Breck commercials, Jacqueline Smith. She's, I'm still very friendly with her today. The late Bob Crane, the lead of Hogan's Heroes. Bob Crane was a guy, again, of our MCs and hosts uh, uh, arena. He was on KNX Radio, good-looking guy, and uh, I represented him, made his deal at, at KNX Radio, and then went on to, uh, I don't think we were representing him as an actor when he got Hogan's Heroes. I don't think so. That's who it is. And one of the most famous announcers, certainly here and in the world, the late Chick Hearn. Chick Hearn I represented for uh, all of his career. Uh, excuse me, not all of his career. I represented him since he first started working for the Lakers here in Los Angeles uh, when Bob Short brought the uh, Minneapolis Lakers to the franchise to Los Angeles, and they made a deal uh, here. On, uh, and I represented uh, Chick. Uh, Chick was on uh, a local uh, KNBC uh, newscast sports reporter at night. And I had him as a host, he did a show called Bowling for Dollars that I represented his interests in and ended up representing him in connection with uh, a lot of stuff with the Lakers. I'm still very friendly with the family. Coincidentally, uh, this is just a sidelight. His widow, Marge Hearn, who I was very close to as well, just passed away last week. Her memorial is this Friday night at the Lakers. Uh, I mean, at the Staples Arena, I'll be attending the memorial. And they had two children, unfortunately, who died very young. But one of the children got married and had a child. And that granddaughter uh, is, I'm still very friendly with today. And I'm, I'm, rep I'm representing the Hearn estate. I'm negotiating a deal right now for all of his chickisms, which he made, uh, voiced on the radio in his uh, radio and television broadcasts. We're going to, uh, a, a group of people want to put them on uh, wearing apparel. Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes is a girl who um, was actually found uh, a um, business trip. Uh, I used to send our youth, uh, the woman who ran our youth department uh, here in LA, who had worked for me for many years, named Wendy Green. Uh, I'd send her out to go to talent conventions around the country. And she went to this one in Columbus, Ohio, and found this girl, Katie Holmes and uh, brought her to, uh, she was then 16 or 17, and uh, brought her to, convinced her and her mother to move to Los Angeles. And uh, we put her to work on a show called Dawson's Creek, which kind of launched her career and uh, made her into a household name and a household face. And I was very involved with her career all during that period of time. Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez was a gal who, uh, 
was a fly girl on a show called In Living Color, a television show hosted by uh, Keenan Ivory Waynes on the Fox Broadcasting Network. And uh, she was a fly girl, one of the dancers. And we represented her in our commercial department. We needed a girl who could, um, we needed an attractive uh, Hispanic girl. We didn't have one in, in our commercial department at the time. And uh, uh, we, we watched her. Uh, we, had a, we had another uh, actress uh, uh, on that show whose name fails me at the moment, who never amounted to that much. But I used to go to the show and uh, service that talent. And I've found Jennifer Lopez there. I thought she was, uh, uh, would be good for our commercial department. We brought her into our commercial department. She started shooting commercials. And um, once we took her on and extended ourselves to her uh, from a theatrical representation standpoint, uh, Eric Gold decided he would then manage her as well. Eric Gold is a co-manager of Jim Carrey and many others. So we took her on and she worked in our commercial department. And then our commercial agents interact with our uh, theatrical agents all the time. and. Uh, we found a need for, need, uh, for needing a young Hispanic actress for our theatrical department, and we took her on for representation. We put her into a show called South Central, which was a half-hour uh, dramedy, and, uh, uh, and she became well-known as a result of that. And uh, then we put her into a feature picture called uh, uh, with um, uh, Wesley Snipes, and uh, I forgot the other guy's name. I can see him right in front of me. Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. It was a film called uh, The Money Train. She played a uh, subway token clerk in that film. And that was her breakout film. And that really kind of put her on the map. Carrie Washington. Carrie Washington is a girl also that we took on in New York City originally from commercials and then took her on as a young actress. and. Uh, did uh, terrific things for her, and she worked in uh, television. She didn't have a television series of any consequence at the time. We put her into feature pictures. She did three or four feature pictures, but her breakout film was a film called uh, Ray, and uh, we put her into that film, and that was a film that gave her tremendous visibility. She played Jamie Foxx's wife or ex-wife, I can't recall, girlfriend, and... Uh, at that point, after four or five years with us, her head got a little bit too big. Your proudest moment in show business? I think my proudest professional moment is uh, being able to, I, I have a, 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 a real good um, perception about people. I've always been very good about, about that. Uh, it, it follows, because I'm a talent agent, that I have an eye for talent. But I also have a good perception about people. And I, my proudest moment has been to find and discover many different persons who I feel would turn out to be good artist representatives and offer them opportunities to come to work in our agent and training program to become agents and then elevating them and promoting them up to where they are today. And I, I'm, I feel that's probably my proudest moment or proudest achievement 
many people, well, you've just named some of those people like Shaney Rosenzweig and Ruth Ann Secunda and, uh, and Martin Lisak and all those others, uh, and Scott Harris and uh, Howard Goldberg and uh, Don Buckwald. And uh, so I feel I've been able to find a lot of people and train and teach them the art of good, solid artist representation. And uh, I think that's my proudest achievement. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel you to go to the next level. My biggest disappointment is the disappointments that I've had that I've talked about this morning with different people who I trusted and uh, who did me dirty. Got it. By the way, there are five of them who have done me dirty in my career as an agent. Three of them are dead. They died at young ages. The other two are still alive. Scott Harris and Don Buckwald. One was Noel Rubeloff. One was uh, Howard Goldberg. And another was a fellow who we haven't even talked about, uh, J. Michael Boone. I know him well. When I was looking for furniture for my new office in Los Angeles, I answered an ad selling used furniture. I went to an office, and I looked around, and a man was asleep on a couch. And I said, excuse me, and he woke up. I said, are these desks for sale? He said, yes. I said, my name's Barry. He said, my name's J. Michael Bloom. And I was like, oh, my God, you're a famous commercial agent. What's going on here? Why is this all like this? We're stopping our business. And the two that are still alive. So out of the five that have really done me dirty, I mean, reneged on business deals and uh, did me, uh, went against me in various forms of business, three of them have died at young ages, and the two are still alive. They're older now. Who would say you did them dirty? Maybe... Maybe Joe Rice. For those of you who don't know, Joe Rice is a tremendous agent. I would say, and Harry could disagree with me, certainly for many years the beating heart behind the brain and soul of Harry Abrams and somebody who Harry considered to be at many times like a son to him. And without knowing all the details or being involved in all the details. Joe worked with him from the very beginnings of Abrams Artists in 1986 when they became officially Abrams Artists all across the board. And within the last five years, Harry and Joe had made a decision to part company. And I'm sure it was probably one of the most difficult decisions that has ever been presented to you. 100% correct. Yeah, very emotional, very difficult. He and I, we were together for 28 years. Yeah. And I had brought him up from, uh, uh, he didn't start in the agent and training program. He'd be working for another agency, a small agency, a tiny agency at that time. But I gave him the opportunities and uh, built up his, uh, uh, built him up as an agent, and gave him a lot of responsibility, et cetera. But unfortunately, uh, you know, times change, things change, and so we went our separate ways. His claim to fame at the company, you'd go into his office and he'd have the Freddy Krueger Claude, one of his biggest clients and most successful clients, Robert England. Last question, Harry. 
what advice do you have for the young person starting out in business and the young actor as well or actress starting out in business? So it's a two-part question. What advice do you have for the young executive or young person to get to the level that you are? And what advice do you have for actors and actresses who don't happen to coddle your son in Central Park and meet you but need to get to the next level? Well, as far as the young uh, business executive, uh, I'll describe the ideal uh, uh, young agent, these people that I've hired in the past. Uh, uh, you want to be enthusiastic, you want to be ambitious, you want to be driven, you want to have a great personality, uh, you want to be interested in sales, uh, you want to, uh, uh, if, if you're an artist, uh, if you want to be a writer or a performer, you're not going to be cut out for this particular business. Uh, I think you should just focus on uh, learning about the entertainment industry, reading up on it, uh, spending a lot of time in the theater, developing a taste and an eye for talent, uh, trying to help your fellow, uh, uh, as you're in college, uh, helping your fellow, or in high school, helping your fellow uh, friends as to how to uh, uh, become successful, or in advising them, counseling them, guiding them. These are the type of people that we look for. Uh, you should um, just be ambitious, driven, have a good sense of business. Um, that's what I would advise. That plus passion for various aspects of the entertainment industry. Young performer, actress, I would, uh, I would say, again, you have to be, you have to want it really badly. You want it more than anything else. You want it more than sex. You want it more than money, uh, you just want the artistry. Uh, so uh, you, you want to become an artist, you want to become a performer, and uh, you have to have that drive uh, that you want to become a performer, and you have to stick to it. So many people try to become performers and they just can't stick with it, and uh, they fall by the wayside, and they uh, wake up 40, 50 years later uh, regretting the fact that they didn't stick with it, per se. And uh, the other aspect, the other thing I would advise a young artist would be, uh, if you want to be an actor, I would recommend strongly that you work in the theater and, and get good training, good education, good uh, uh, the dramatic and theatrical uh, training at places like NYU and Yale School of Drama and Juilliard and uh, some of the top, uh, or, or even... Uh, 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 moving to London and working, uh, uh, training in the theater in London is outstanding at uh, RADA, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, uh, the London uh, Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, outstanding, fabulous training. So that's advice I would give them. Awesome. Harry Abrams, you were incredible today. Thank you so much for spending so much time. You spent like double the time that I thought you'd be able to spend. And that really shows your true commitment to inspiring people. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Okay. As promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary, I killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary. And you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer and 
It's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Robert Sobin from North Royalton, Ohio. Congratulations, Robert. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Max Steele, September 1st, 2013. Heading reads Quietly Awesome, five stars. And it reads Barry Katz's podcast is simply great and quietly awesome. It's like Prozac for my soul. <laughs> All right. Very humbling, I think. Thank you, McSteele. Congratulations. All right. And as always, you've listened to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.